the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no control. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, we have been uh, com- conversing about some pretty heavy topics on Education Nation these last couple of weeks. And yes. if you've been listening, I'm sure your head might be spinning a little bit trying to follow us. And we wanted to make sure that we give you access to the article that we are drawing from largely, and that is the Federal Law Protections for Religious Liberty statement that was just issued on October 6th by Jeff Sessions at the direction of President Trump so that he could provide guidance in interpreting religious liberty protections in federal law. And so if you want to find that document yourselves, you can go to justice.gov and in the search engine type federal law protections for religious liberty. Again, that's justice.gov and then type in Federal Law Protections for Religious Liberty into the search engine. And once I remember, as you type that into the search engine, it should be the first thing that pops up in the list of articles you Mm -hmm. can click on. Good. And it's a pretty long document, and, you know, it has a little bit of legalese in it, of course, um, but it is a really valuable read, and I I found it very enlightening to see, and again, refreshing, uh, because it did... I got the impression upon reading it that there is sort of a resetting uh, of religious freedom in this country yes. at at really what RIFRA, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, presented to us in 1993, which was unanimously uh, approved by Congress and uh, both the House and Senate. Senate was almost a major or it was almost a 100% i think it was a 97, 97 to 3, to three. vote yeah. and signed into law by president bill clinton at the time so not even a republican president and so uh jeff sessions was really i think resetting the clock and saying here we go this is the last piece of legislation that interprets religious freedom and the establishment clause and and what have you of our constitution and so it's an important document for us as americans to be aware of especially if you own a small business or um you know if you are part of any type of a religious organization or if you are working in a setting where sometimes you find your faith to be you know challenged in a way that you think is unfair or not correct uh it's a good way for you to take a look at this document and and have a better understanding for how things are being interpreted right now. Yes, the document is a little more than 25 pages long. And again, I mean, we mentioned this last week on the program, but it's just really disturbing to see 
how law, especially that has been legislatively passed, signed into Mm -hmm. law, has never been undone through the legislative process and how people's rights are just being trampled on Mm -hmm. at every turn. Mm -hmm. It's really angering when you think about it. And I really hope that this document gets a lot more public relations press and advocated so that people know what their rights are as it pertains to the fullness of the First Amendment. Right. And it is important because judges are single-handedly ignoring it in many cases. And uh, I believe that if it if some of these cases that we've heard about do make it to the Supreme Court, maybe there would be an adjustment based upon uh, this direction given from Jeff Sessions. Right. And I think you're going to see a lot of traffic, though, in the judicial process because you look at a lot of the judges that are at the lower courts. And are mm-hmm. they really there to interpret law in the originalist sense or are they there on an activism basis? Right. And so you then begin to wonder, well, how many of these cases will the Supreme Court take if the process becomes really traffic change, right, you know. Right, right, Yeah, they won't be able to take that many, I'm sure. Well, last week we focused on uh, the pieces of this document that applied to the free, or the establishment, or, or the free exercise, excuse yes. me, of religion. Um, but in this particular show, we're going to look at the pieces of this document that address the establishment clause yes. of the First Amendment. Absolutely. So, in addition to the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, as we just mentioned, the Establishment Clause, too, does protect religious liberty. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thought when you think of a, the, uh, the the Establishment Clause, you think, okay, you know, that means government can't take the side of any one particular religion, religion rather, or implement it into society. So mm-hmm. let's go ahead, though, and, and do take a look at some of what those protections are, though, mm-hmm. uh, under religious liberty. Well, one, as we mentioned, it, pro- it, it prohibits government from establishing a religion and coercing Americans to follow it, and it restricts government from interfering in the internal governance or the ministerial decisions of a religious organization. And the first person that I think of, excuse me, is Hillary Clinton. There was a big to-do back in 2015 Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, she was speaking uh, to a group on behalf of the fullness of health and reproductive rights. And Mm -hmm. she had made the comment about how deep-seated religious codes and religious beliefs and structural biases Mm -hmm. uh, needed to be changed. Do you remember that? Yeah, we played that on one of our shows. It was so incredibly blatant. It was just a complete slap in the face. And I think in some respects... Intentioned or not, it was a threat to uh, the religious observances of of particular denominations. I think she was probably really targeting the Catholic Church at that point because she was talking about contraception and abortion. And uh, obviously they have been staunch advocates for non not using any type of contraception at all and what right. have you. And so she she sees that as a problem and and believes that the code should be changed, of course, irregardless of what the Catholic theology might be right. behind Just their a total beliefs. Disregard. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so you have to wonder, you know, had she been elected president, you know, what types of government intrusions would have followed. So uh, the establishment clause, it does prohibit government from officially favoring or disfavoring particular religious groups as such, or officially advocating uh, particular religious points of view. And so there are a couple of examples on this that we can talk about. We rewind a little bit back to the Obama administration, and there was a lot of talk about the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a group of people that 
that uh, many Americans were probably not familiar with Mm -hmm. prior to the Obama presidency. And so the Muslim Brotherhood, by definition, if you look this up, they are defined as a religious and political group, religious and Mm -hmm. political group founded on the belief that Islam is not simply a religion, but a way of life Mm -hmm. and that it advocates a move away from secularism and a return to the rules of the Quran as a basis for healthy families, communities, and states. And as I did a little research on the Obama administration, they had invited a long list of individuals that were tied to the U.S. chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood to serve as important advisors. Right. And, you know, I remember when the Muslim Brotherhood became a household name, and it was, I believe, after... Uh, Hosni Mubarak was brought down in Egypt. Egypt. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, if the Muslim Brotherhood fills this void, because I had been doing some reading on the Middle East, and I was pretty familiar from my reading with actually the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood, though they present themselves as a moderate organization. They're very extreme. They're that terrorists. Yes. And, and I knew they were very well organized. And I remember even saying to my husband, as we watched this whole thing transpire, we happened to be at the airport at the time, and I remember saying, oh my goodness, if the Muslim brother, if this falls, if he falls, as much as we don't like him because he's this horrible dictator, Mubarak, um, I fear that the Muslim Brotherhood would fill the void because they're so well organized. And it's it's kind of that old adage, be careful what you wish for, mm-hmm. because you replace one horrible dictator, at least he was secular in the sense that he didn't want to have a government that was operated with Muslim principles and run by the Quran, where we've you know had some troubles in other countries in the Middle East. Um, but at the same time, you know, to replace replace them, replace Mubarak with a group that does want that, and and they kind of they insulated the West from who they really were, and I thought that that was very apparent when. President Obama leaned so heavily on them for advice. Right. Granted, they were people here representing Muslim Brotherhood in the American or in in the United States of America, but at the same time, they were still from the Muslim Brotherhood. And I thought, why is he depending on them for counsel? Does he not know? And of course, you have to assume he does. He knows right. more than we do uh, because he has access to all of that. Uh, but I found that shocking that he was leaning so heavily on the Muslim Brotherhood for advice. It's interesting to know, too, you know, you mentioned Egypt and really where this all centered on. The Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in 1928. Yes, yes. yep, so. yep. And it's it's it, and it has been very much of a terrorist organization yes. uh, over the years. So I, I just found it interesting that they're public relations uh, effort worked, you know, even with our government, with our own U.S. government, which really surprised me. And it's interesting. I mean, this obviously has had the attention of the Trump administration, uh, and they've been really weighing ever since they've come into office whether to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror organization. Mm -hmm. So while the administration's really been weighing that issue, Mm -hmm. the president himself has a contingency of Christians that have been praying with and speaking to the president on issues as they've been pertaining to religious liberty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is this in response, I mean, to what many may feel 
may have been the previous administrations having played favorites with the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Trump playing favorites with Christians? Certainly not saying that he is. Mm-hmm. But either way, I think as people out there are paying attention to this, that may raise the question for them, you know, are governments playing favorites with particular religious mm-hmm. groups? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought. I certainly hadn't thought of that myself, Mark, but that's a good question to ask. And I, uh, whether or not it's in response, I don't know that Trump is seeking uh, advice from Christians uh, because Obama right. sought it from Muslims, but it certainly does seem that he has uh, favored that that religion over others in terms of asking for advice and support. And, you know, I guess I look at it a little bit differently in the sense that we we are a country that was founded on Judeo-Christian yes, exactly. pr- principles. And it's not as though Muslim, Islam didn't exist when America was founded. Mm-hmm. It did. It Obviously, it had been in existence for a long time. And yet this country was founded on Judeo-Christian yes. principles. So, Agreed 100%. You know, I, I look at that and I think, well, you know, uh, if, if Trump is erring on that side, at least it isn't, it's consistent with our, with our history, with right. our nation's history. And I don't know if it's so much the president himself, but I, I know that well-informed Christians, obviously, were paying attention to what was going on in the previous administration, as we were as well. Yeah. And you wonder if maybe some of their efforts in speaking to the president may have been motivated by some of the things they saw before. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, title moving on, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as amended, prohibits covered employers from discriminating against individuals on the basis of their religion. So employers who are covered by Title Seven may not fail or refuse to hire, discharge, or discriminate against any individual with respect to compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of that individual's religion. But the protection does not apply in the same way to religious employers who have certain constitutional and statutory protections for religious hiring decisions. So in other words... Religious employers have certain protections for their rights. Uh, so, so the law that would the the uh, seven, amendment seven is not going to apply in quite the same way. Title, or title seven. seven, sorry, yep. title seven is not going to apply in the same way to religious when it employers. comes to religious employers. Yeah. Yep. So Congress has acknowledged that religion is sometimes an appropriate factor in employment decisions. So that limits Title VII's scope accordingly, and it is appropriate in these scenarios. Uh, the ones that they specifically cite in this document is where religious, where religion is a bona fide occupational qualification reasonably necessary to the normal operation of a particular business or enterprise. Um, employers may hire and employ individuals based on their religion. And, um, you know, I would, I would think of, you know, Christian churches or not just Christian, but any type of religious, uh, organization, whether that be a church or a school or, um, uh, and even a nonprofit, maybe that like Planned Parenthood, not Planned Parenthood, but the types of organizations that are helping people who 
have unplanned pregnancies. I'm blanking out on what they're called, but like a lot of those have family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a lot of those have a religious component to them, right. and so what this is saying is that they can. That's a bona fide, a bona fide, bona fide occupational qualification. Um, that they would be faith-based because it's faith-based a faith-based based based organization. based on their religious beliefs to combat yep. the belief that right. they're opposed to. And that's true for other religions as well. It doesn't just apply to Christianity. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, another case where Title VII scope uh, would be limited is where educational institutions are owned, supported, controlled, or managed by a particular religion or by a particular religious corporation or association or society or direct their curriculum toward the propagation of a particular religion. Such institutions may hire and employ individuals of a particular religion. Um, So this, again, it sounds like a mouthful, but in other words, um, if they are managed by a particular organization or there's a religious um, curriculum, then they can... Uh, be treated differently with this Title VII. The scope gets limited for them. And uh, some of the conversation that we've had around this is, um, you know, denominations. Is there a difference between being a denominational school or a non-denominational school? Um, there's particular organizations behind a denomination where there isn't a particular organization behind non-denominational, and yet they are also definitely under the same coverage of Title VII from the standpoint that they have a particular curriculum that is faith-based, and uh, they they have you know association. Uh, within their organization. So um, I haven't seen that tested, but I, I do believe that it would be covered for, for both types. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then Title VII also defines religion broadly to include all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief. Therefore, the exemptions for employers include decisions to employ only persons whose beliefs and conduct are consistent with the employer's religious precepts. That's right. Well, we're going to take a short time out here on Education Nation. When we return, we're going to be discussing a few more court cases in which this establishment clause in terms of religious liberty protections are extended to religious organizations. We'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned. Well, welcome back to Education Nation, where we are discussing federal law protections for religious liberty. This is a document that was put out on October 6th by Jeff Sessions to help interpret the religious freedom of Americans. And we, in the second part of the show, are going to continue sharing some examples with you, um, but we are focused on the Establishment Clause yes. and how uh, elements of religious protection apply to the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And right before the break, I talked briefly about, um, I think, denominational schools versus non-denominational yes. schools and the protection um, that, I, that I believe that the religious employers are um, given some limits then to Title VII scope as a result. And we found a a part of this document that we mentioned uh, earlier that really highlights that for us. And it actually says 
that where educational institutions are owned, supported, controlled, or managed by a particular religion or by a particular religious corporation, association, or society, or direct their curriculum toward the propagation of a particular religion, such institutions may hire and employ individuals of a particular religion. So, in other words, a non-denominational school would be covered under this because they are using curriculum that is in propagation of a particular religion. Yes. So just wanted to share that uh, highlight because I think it's an important distinction because I think there's a lot of non-denominational institutions out there, a lot of non-denominational Christian schools, but also a lot of non-denominational ministries uh, that would be looking to this type of uh, legislation for protection. It's good knowledge to have. And again, we'll mention at the end of the show where they can go to access this document so they can read it over uh, themselves to to have Mm -hmm. that information. Well, as we're speaking about the Establishment Clause and the religious liberty protections associated with that, this also does extend, as we've mentioned, to religious organizations who may be entitled to additional exemptions from discrimination laws. Well, how so? How is that? Well, a religious organization might conclude that it cannot employ a person who fails faithfully to adhere to the organization's religious tenets, either because doing so might itself inhibit the organization's exercise of religion or because it might dilute an expressive message. So let's give an example of that to break down that legalese. There was a court case back in 2000 in the state of New Jersey, or originated from the state of New Jersey, of the Boy Scouts of America versus Dale. Now, Boy Scouts of America, or BSA, as we'll refer to them, they're a nonprofit religious organization that has taken a stance against homosexuality. And BSA had decided to exclude assistant scoutmaster James Dale from membership because he identified as being homosexual. Dale had previously made his homosexuality public. He did that initially, and the New Jersey Supreme Court determined that New Jersey's public accommodations law, which is essentially a law prohibiting discrimination in places of public accommodation, it required the scouts to readmit Dale as a scoutmaster. So the case, it made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and by the narrowest of margins, five to four, the court held that the constitutional right to freedom of association allows a private organization like the Boy Scouts of America to exclude a person from membership when, quote, the presence of that person affects in a significant way the group's ability to advocate public or private viewpoints. So opposition to homosexuality is part of BSA's expressive message and that allowing homosexuals as adult leaders would interfere with that message. That's interesting. And that case was back in 2000, and I believe that the Boy Scouts of America have taken a completely different stance on that now. Am I correct? I well, we heard in, we heard mm-hmm. in the last week that now they're allowing uh, girls mm-hmm. to be a part of the Boy Scouts mm-hmm. of America, separate dens. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought that they had taken a stance uh, also 
in allowing homosexuality to be a part of their organi- or you know homosexual individuals to be a part of their organization, but maybe not part of the leadership structure. Okay. I guess I I really don't know, but I, I think we should look into that because sure. this case is old, two thousand. But the pertinent point and the salient point that you're making in bringing this case up is right. that the interpretation of the law. Um, was was in favor of the organization and the expressive and the message express, they wanted to communicate. Yes, yep, and that is the key, and that is what's most important takeaway from yes. from that case. Um, I'll look into that for yes, sure. Yes, because I'm curious. I, I think I might be right, but I might be wrong. You may very well be right. I'll <laughs> I'm check wrong in with more times than I than I'd like to admit. So, um, so anyway, federal law also calls for protections for religious employees. So again, going back to Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, Congress declared it unlawful for a covered employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any individual with respect to compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's religion. So uh, at one point, employers discharged employees for refusing to work on the Sabbath. That resulted in Congress amending Title VII to define religion broadly to include all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief, unless... An employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate an employer's or an employee's religious observance or practice without the undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Well, again, a mouthful. And I you know, I know that one of the thoughts that you've had is, you know, how how do you measure undue hardship? And that's a question that I think is difficult. And I think that that's why some of these cases end up at the courts or in the courts. It's probably on a case by case basis with each company. Yeah, because I do think, you know, not providing undue hardship on the business, but without substantially burdening the employees free exercise of religion. And I know that we've seen some cases around the country with uh, Muslim employees wanting to pray at certain times of the day. Yes. And I believe that. Uh, one case that comes to mind was an assembly line uh, type of a business that required an assembly line, and that would be considered an undue hardship for the, somebody to leave the assembly line to go pray because the assembly line has to keep going. That's right, <laughs> with or without them, and uh, so that that was an undue hardship. So uh, I think that, like you said, it's probably very much on a case by case basis. So another way an accommodation might pose an undue hardship on a business is if weekend work is essential to the business and many employees have religious observances that would prohibit them from working on the weekends at all. So this could lead to significant overtime pay or costs to the employers and what have you or even just not even being able to open the business because they don't have enough people. Um, but Title VII expects positive results for society in the cooperative process of reasonable accommodation between employer and employee. Religious speech and expression really is a useful example of reasonable accommodation, where these are a part of a person's religious observances and practices that can almost always be accommodated outside of the scope of an individual's employment without undue hardship. 
but within the scope of an individual's employment during work hours or in the workplace, um, they may be reasonably accommodated depending upon the facts and the circumstances. And that, that begs the question, what are the circumstances? Well, yeah. according to the guidelines on religious exercise and religious expression in the federal workplace, this was also issued by President Clinton back in 1997, the federal government permits federal employees to keep a Bible or a Quran on the employee's private desk, to read it during breaks, to discuss religious views with other employees, to subject to the same rules of order as apply to other employee expression, Mm -hmm. to display religious messages, uh, to hand out religious tracts, and to invite them to attend worship services in the employee's place of worship, except to the extent that such speech becomes excessive or harassing. So we'll close on this point real quick then. Mm -hmm. In today's culture that is overflowing with offense, how will a company measure excessive or Mm -hmm. harassing? Yep, that's going to be the big question. And I think it depends on how much they're kind of impacting another person's space in their office uh, with their words or with their actions. So we want to just one more time highlight this document that we've been talking about for the last couple of shows. And again, to find it, you go to justice.gov and in the search engine, you type federal law protections for religious liberty. That's federal law protections for religious liberty. We thank you so much for joining us and listen to our podcast and join us again next week on Education Nation. 